Coming up next, the booking reads bleak. Here, you should just do it. You should just you be the booking theme for this episode. Coming up next, the booking reads bleak house. Hey everybody, welcome to the booking. My name is Nathan Alvarez. I'm your humble We got Brandon over there. He's a bit. Brandon, you're the true or false. You're the scholar who is baller of reading. True. True or false. You love your life. True. True or false. You love your wife. True. True or false. Happy wife. Happy life. True. True or false. You have a happy true. Wife. True or false. True. You murdered seven people. True. But which seven? I'll never tell. Jake. True or false. You're the pastor who's a master of reading. True. True or false. You have a happy wife. True. True or false. You murdered seven people. True. True or false. They were. True. Mormons. True. True or false. You planned it over a period of months. True. They had it coming. They had it coming. <laughs> I was hoping you. They had it coming. They only had themselves to blame. If you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it, I tell you, you would have done the same. Little Chicago for you folks. Don't watch that. It's bad. It's bad. Don't um, watch it. I remembered it being better than it was, or I remembered it being not as bad, and then I watched it again, and uh, it's no, it's bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Are supposed to be talking about Dickens? Dickens! We are yes. supposed to be talking about Dickens. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's I know do what? We don't always do this, but we haven't done this for a while. Let's do donor shoutouts first. Let's just get them out of the way today. Let's do it. I want to clear the decks. Or... Can we moo again? Yeah, sure. Moo part two. Moo part two. The but I'm going to give you specific moo cues. Okay. Good. All right. Money by Mason, British moo. Moo. <laughs> moo. <laughs> The immortal Chelsea E. Sick, dying moo. Moo. Nathan, not me. Russian moo. And moo. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, little er, Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Proud moo. Moo. Lily of the Valley. Humble moo. Moo. <laughs> Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds, and little baby Timothy. Feminine moo. Moo. <laughs> moo. The inscrutable Jenny Z, masculine moo. Moo. <laughs> uh, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebird, Texas moo. Moo. Ha. Moo ha. Moo ha. Moo ha. Moo ha. John and Jill and little baby Max. Movie. Moo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the incandescent mm, Meredith, a romantic moo. Moo. <laughs> moo. Uh, moo. The Keith Master. Moo. Baby moo. Yikes. <laughs> a ghastly, ghostly moo for the Keith Master. Moo. My beloved mother, meth. My beloved mother, meth. Drug addled moo. <laughs> Moo. Moo. Johanna, the the jubilant, no, I don't just want to do alliteration. The wonderful, amazing, beautiful Johanna. That's eh, not good. What is she? She's Johanna the Avenger of Worlds. There you go. Thanos. Uh, Thanos Moo. Moo. Uh, Rockin' Ryan and Jumpin' Judy. Um, courtly Moo. Renaissance Moo. <laughs> Moo. 
Danny the Dude, <laughs> Surfer <laughs> Moo. <laughs> Moo. <laughs> DJ Sammy G, DJ Moo. Uh, There's no way your wife is judging us right now. <laughs> yeah, none whatsoever. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. Moo. Mm, no. <laughs> Donor shots, of course. We did all have a stroke. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did all have a stroke. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, folks, if you're playing at home, we're doing this at Jake's house. I don't know if we said this. And Jake's wife just walked in and slammed the door. While we were mooing. While we were mooing. These Patreon shout-outs are utterly ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you think you are? Brandon? Cud it out. Okay. I wish I could say that I was going home, but <laughs> you are home. You're Maybe I'll home. just go to bed. <laughs> nope. Uh, where are we? <laughs> just be a whole episode of cow puns. <laughs> cow puns. You gotta stay with us, nay, uh, Jake. <laughs> nay. <laughs> my... You gotta milk this <laughs> to the end. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you all. Uh, oh, cows. Um, <laughs> Benny and Danny T. Uh, Steven Spielberg movie, Moo. Moo, Moo. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was funny. I like that. Moo, 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 uh, Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. <laughs> Beatles, Moo. Moo. I don't know. <laughs> what was that? Moo, 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 Moo. There you go. I don't know what either of those songs were. Uh, Eric and... You know, he's a professor X and Lady Moo. There you go. Hey, <laughs> Moo. Another that's Moo. Lady. Another for who? For Moo. Um, that was for Moo. That was for Lady X and Professor McGonagall. Mm. Professor McGonagall. Moogonagall. Moogonagall. More like it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of Moo are we going for here? <laughs> I, we've, there's been plenty of episodes where we've been more off the rails than we are now, but I don't know that I've ever personally felt more off the rails. Like, I don't know how we got here. I have no idea either. <laughs> or what happened or why. But we are here. But we are here. All right, Brandon. Yeah. You're the contextual Texan. I am. Also been called the contextual Texan. Did we get through the shout outs? Yeah, we got the shout outs. Okay. We got them all. Do you want to say something, Amanda? No. Oh. Do you want to bang around the kitchen putting groceries away? Okay. That's all right. We're doing it at Jake's house. People understand that we lost an episode because my car was broken into, and now we're doing it at Jake's house. And Amanda, Jake's lovely wife, she's putting away groceries. She enables Jake to do everything that he does. Like eat. Like eat mm-hmm. <laughs> by buying groceries. If she wasn't, didn't exist, Jake would starve. True. And we like eat her. a lot of Grippos. Or eat a lot of Grippos. And so it's subsist on Grippos. Grippos and AL8. Amanda, are you still there? I understand you're a big AL8 fan. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Small world. It's a small world. Yeah. All right, Brandon. Are we doing this now? Let's do it. Brandon is the contextual Texan. Mm -hmm. He's going to let out a hail and heartle yee heartle. Heartle. He's going to let out a hail and heartle yee haw. Yee haw. That wasn't very hail and heartle. It can't be too hail and heartle because kids are asleep. That's true. Um, It don't matter none. Yeehaw! (laughs) You got the hurdle, but not the hail. Yeah, it's hurdle enough. And now he's going to give us some much-needed context on this work, Bleak House, by one uh, Charles Chucky uh, D. 
Dickens. Fun fact about these notes I'm about to read from. Yes. These were prepared the night when we recorded the episodes that were lost. Mm-hmm. But we did not actually record the episode that these notes were prepared for. No, we didn't. We so, didn't even get to that episode. I don't know if people care about that or if that should be said. Probably not. Yeah, let's not say that. All right, let's do it. Yeehaw. Uh, yeehaw. Cut that. <laughs> it's all going to go in. <laughs> all right, so... When Brendan gives a command, he claps. Yeah. <laughs> like a Raj. Come, Nathan. Raj Nishi. Or, Come, uh, boy. Yes. Yeah. You're going to give us a much needed context on the work of Chuckle, Yeah, I think Chuckles that we've done Dickens. context on Charles Dickens before. Yeah, we did the, um, whatchamacallit, the episodes on Christmas Story. Yeah, so if people want to see how context has changed yeah. from the first year. Mm-hmm. Was that first year? Sure. Yeah, probably. I think, I think that so. was first yes, year. it was. Yeah. To this year, to now, how we do context, they can go back and listen to that. Yeah, and, and they'll learn that this. the Ghost of Christmas Past, his in, his employment per Wikipedia is producer of visions. Producer of visions. Yeah. That's right. Ghost so, of Christmas Present, I should say. All right, Brennan, give us some much needed context on Charles Dickens, Jake's right. favorite author. For some reason, I have the word life in capital letters right. circled at the like top of this page. Cereal. Jake, your favorite cereal, life cereal? False. Your favorite cereal, Count Chocula? False. Booberry? False. Bran? False. Raisin bran. False. Super raisin. You're not going to... I don't like cereal. Eat, um, Cinnamon this, Toast Crunch. Okay. That's a... Cookie crisp. That's that's pretty... No, Cinnamon Toast Crunch is I just want to say, when I As said like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I felt a swell of pride because I knew even though you don't like cereal, Cinnamon Toast Crunch is that's right. the bomb. That's diggity. a good call. Does yeah. your wife know your favorite cereal? No, because I don't eat cereal. I, Do you listen to cereal? I listened to season. season one, but... Is there a third season? Oh, yeah, the third season was actually pretty good. Nope, I didn't listen to the hmm. second season. Yeah, all right. So 1812. <laughs> uh, follow-up question, favorite serial killer? Mm. Mm, that's that's easy. That's not That's, that's easy. <laughs> that's, that's easy. Count Chocula. Oh, I thought about so this many. one. <laughs> Count Chocula, Count obviously. Chocula. Oh, yeah. Brandon, your favorite serial? Serial killer? My favorite serial. Oh, man, Nathan. I don't know. Because we didn't have enough answer <laughs> your favorite serial killer we're gonna save this for it'll be like the serial podcast yes cliffhanger people will have to wait for another episode to hear my favorite serial and serial killer okay all right 1812 1812 yes and then the next one we'll find out yours yeah fair they'll have the whole month of december to and look forward to i'm just gonna go ahead and tell people no reason and to danny's about too this. we're having danny not mm-hmm. danny the dude from P- patron fame but danny mm-hmm. The chick that appears on Dubstep our podcast, Danny. Dubstep Danny, the mom who's bomb of reading, she's going to come on. She's going to talk about this book. Couldn't make it for context because weird, my computer things, stuff, I don't know. But she's not here tonight, but she's going to be here to talk Dickens with us. And we're going to find out what her favorites. Jake, do not let me forget to ask what Danny's favorite serial and favorite serial killer. I will certainly forget. All right. <laughs> All right. All right, Brandon. This is the greatest. Yeah, this is the best context episode ever. This is the best episode, period. Okay, so 1812 is a big year in history. Right. Because there's Lots a war. going on. There is a the war. The war of? Not just Anyone? Anyone? One the war, war. of? 1812. 1812. All right. It's not just one war. It's not just one war. Wait, Brandon. What? Do my ears deceive <laughs> me? Your ears do not deceive you. So... We've got the War of 1812 in America, but that's not really the one that matters for old Dickens in the year that he was born. (laughs) Because there's a crossover with a major literary work for one of our favorites. The war um, in 1812, you would have Napoleonic Wars and the invasion of Russia, Ah. which is a nice little crossover with War and Peace. There you go. That's the one I was thinking of. I had completely forgotten about the War of 1812 (laughs) in my notes (laughs) until you guys mentioned it. 
What was that famous was war foreign, from 1812? Those foreign wars. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Never started a land war in Asia. That's my fault. Yeah, that was a that. land war in Asia. Also, December 20th, the first volume of Grimm's Fairy Tales was published. Hey. That's kind of fun. I like those things. Yeah. So this is 1812. Dickens was wars born. Wars and fairy tales. Yeah. And yeah. Jake likes cereal. And he loves Dickens. And he loves Dickens. Um, <laughs> He's my favorite still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right up so, here with this episode as far as awesome things. I do think it's fair to say that among the authors we've read on the bookening so far, Dickens ranks up there with Tolstoy, Austin, and Shakespeare as a giant figure. Yes. Whether or not he deserves that stature, we will argue about. And probably we'll have some fun heated arguments about. It's, <laughs> but that will not be this day. <laughs> <laughs> right. One day. Today we're just going to let you talk context. We will dissolve <laughs> our bonds and flee like cowards. Today I get the entire day. episode to stack the decks in my favor. <laughs> yeah, big comedy. <laughs> So that's what's fun about my job is I get this whole episode pretty much to myself. Yes. No, I just want to say, let's go ahead and tell. Let's let's just say Jake has always been, and we won't go into details, but Jake has always been like a little on the fence about Dickens. Dickens Even after A Christmas Carol. Yeah. 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 But he's 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 read some of bleak house at this point we sorry ebenezer scrooge yeah <laughs> bah, humbug. i've not finished bleak house yet yeah by the time of this his heart will be melted well i wouldn't be surprised if it was because dickens does do a lot of things that jake likes listen i trust you guys and i'm expecting it to be melted we do wonder if we shouldn't have done david copperfield instead because there's even more things that jake would love in that yeah book. we did we did a challenge I, one well for better or for worse. It, i really associate his style with every, I mean, if you think about this, is a high hurdle to get over the fact that I had to read this tedious, wordy <laughs> book. Yep. <laughs> for details, like what color was Pip's bag on page four hundred and twenty-two? Yep. It was just like, ugh. So you've been traumatized. And all these details that were not in there for any reason whatsoever, except that he gets paid by the word, are the details that I'm being quizzed on. Yeah, that's no, that's hard. That's, that's and then problem. I've got to overcome that feeling every time I'm reading words that are in there because he gets paid by the word and that aren't seeming to serve. Well, as we'll find out, when we get to Bleak House, he wasn't necessarily being paid by the word. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. He just he just had established those habits. Say lots of words. <laughs> he just was very a verbose man. Jake, if you don't like Bleak House, it's going to be okay. I didn't like. What's that guy? Ready with? Player One. Well, no, Brandon. I hated Ready Player One. We, we, I think we've, we're, me and Brandon are both heavily associated with our hatreds. Brandon with Ready Player One. Brandon yes. is like the poster child for hating, or boy, as I like to say, for hating. Thank you. Ready I Player would One. prefer man, yes. but I'll go with <laughs> the poster. Brandon's the poster man for hating Ready Player One. That sounds creepy. I'll be the poster boy. <laughs> and I am the poster boy for hating, um, not, even though I didn't hate it, but um, I, didn't, I, I didn't read it. Um, Ah, Gilead, the mysterious phantom, showed up. I wasn't even Agatha Christie. Uh, Agatha Christie, though, just didn't do it for me. But yeah. I, I freely admitted that she could do it for other people. Um, but let's think about this. Ernest Klein, Agatha Christie, Charles Dickens. Jake's going to have a little bit of a time convincing us. So he he'll come around. This is going to be his Star Wars episode. He's going to come around. I, I think he actually us. might. And I don't want to antagonize him too much and make him have to dig his heels in. Like, I think yeah. he actually just wise. In fact, yeah. maybe the next three episodes, he should be visited by Christmas past. Mm-hmm. Brandon. This episode. Uh, uh, easy. Christmas <laughs> present. Yeah. Me. And then Christmas future. Danny. 
She will be dressed in death death's robes. <laughs> Wait, isn't that how she always <laughs> death Danny? Yeah, fun fact about Danny, she wears a long dark uh, funeral shroud um with a hood. Like, yeah. And carries a sickle when she comes in. She does, and she has those two horrifying those skeletal the books. Hands. Yeah, those children that are Oh yeah, she has like horrifying children. <laughs> <Then> I realized <laughs> you're combining I two ghosts. Say that. <laughs> no, oh. in the books like it's like poverty and Hunger, yeah, want, want and, and avarice. avarice. Yeah, that's those what it was. The, yeah. But those, those are it's a ghost of the Christmas present. Yeah, yeah, Brandon. Is that Christmas? Oh, you're right. Call yourself a Dickens scholar. Yikes! Yeah. Come on, man. Come on, man. Yikes! That's around come in your and feet. get to know me better, man. Yeah, that's right. Come in and get to know Dickens better, man. <laughs> that's 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 around your feet. I forget. <laughs> okay, okay, so <laughs> we're still in 1812. How many times have we said 1812? <laughs> he was born in Portsmouth, and then in 1817 he moved to Chatham. 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 Yeah, I gotta say it like that. And then in 1822, <laughs> at the young age of 10, moved to London. People gonna be disappointed if you don't do the context. Just yeah, yeah I didn't like this. Yeah. And he moved to London with his father and his family. With his father and and his all family. his family. <laughs> That's right. But one of the important things to know, two th- important things to know. We will. How should we handle this context? How should we? I think we should that? just take brief pauses. Okay. In the middle, and we'll we'll follow his biography to the end. Right, that'll kind of be the guiding backbone to this context, <laughs> and we'll have brief asides because right. Dickens loved his asides. Yes, and I know it'll drive Jake crazy. So, and I love a guiding backbone. <laughs> <laughs> what shall I do? Just follow the guiding backbone. You're welcome, Nathan. <laughs> My metaphors are no, Brandon. I'm sorry. I love your context. It's just this is one of those episodes where we we got to do it we got to be jolly and we got to make fun of everything because that's dickens yeah and he interrupts okay. a lot and yeah <laughs> two important yeah, things well okay so he's in london yeah set the scene then in london okay the times i have that written here <laughs> the times. it has nothing to do with ah, the, times the times the times magazine but it's 1837 this will be 15 years later so dickens 15 Gwen, yeah if, no he would have been at this time let me do the math 25. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So I'm just telling you, now we're looking kind of at the setting, the times around him. Queen Victoria would take the throne, and that is why when Dickens would be writing his major works in the late 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, that is why he is seen as a Victorian writer. Okay. Because the queen who would be on the throne during the time was a... Was queen Elizabeth. by the name of Queen Victoria. Okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are definite <laughs> themes that go with, yeah, easy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Queen Victoria would inherit a mega empire. And during this time when Dickens was moving to London, the mega empire was beginning to thrive. And so London was this hub of activity. We had talked about with um, Shakespeare, the immense changes that were happening with London, which allowed for people to have the money and capital to go and see his plays. Well, it was happening three times over that at the time of Dickens. Um, I think between the early 1800s to the time when Dickens was writing, when Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837, the population of London doubled. Wow. Yeah, it's immense growth. And so during Dickens' youth, which would shape the way he would see the world, he he witnessed the struggle of an empire that has to deal with the immense amounts of wealth that's coming in, from its trade expeditions, from India, from um, wherever else, from America. Hong Kong. Hong Kong, all these places that they have their fingers in the pie. Mm-hmm. Their fingers in the pie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bringing in all these goods to Britain. 
And um, London is a port city, and so all these goods are actually coming into London as well. So you're seeing all this wealth, and you're seeing this middle class of merchants becoming these wealthy merchants and peddlers of goods. And you're also seeing the old aristocracy uh, benefiting from this wealth as well. But then at the same time, you're seeing these areas of London that have factory workers, have the immigrants that are just filth, where typhoid breakouts are common, where the roads are just like knee-deep mud. And so this London that is both at the same time this uh, emblem of worldly power and success, and then also at the other extreme, this emblem of poverty and distress and um, human just depravity and filth the nastiness and death. Degradation. And this is what Dickens saw. And um, actually later in his life, he would be famous for actually going out and walking in London, and he would not stay in the nice areas of London, um, even though he would have the money eventually to get a house on Gad's Hill, which was a pretty posh, nice area. He would um, take these long walks, and he would go, and he would walk pretty much all night long, and he would go into people's houses and talk to them. And so he was actually interested in the poor. And I think that when we talked about A Christmas Carol, we mentioned the fact that that was a philanthropic endeavor. When he wrote A Christmas Carol, he did that so that he could raise money for a particular, um, to try and raise money for the poor, because he was very concerned with political issues. Why was he so concerned about that? Well, he grew up in London. He saw these things firsthand. He saw the degradation. He saw the poverty. And then also it had to do with, he didn't, didn't see it. He actually lived it. In 1822, his father was thrown into Marshalsea Prison, which was a debtor's prison, because he was in serious debt. And that's what happened at the time. Instead of these credit card companies taking you to court, there were actually prisons that they would just throw you into. And they were called debtor's prisons. And this particular one was Marshalsea. You had to stay in these prisons until you paid off your debt, but it would be difficult mm-hmm. to pay off your debt if you're in a debtor's prison. Dickens, while his father was in prison for about three months, he had to take a job at a canning factory. It was what they call at the time blacking factory, but he would actually have to put labels onto cans and the conditions were fairly poor. And he had to do this to make money for his family. He would have been, what, about 10, 15 at the time, around that age, um, Peter and Elliot's age. Yeah. And as soon as his father came into his, his inheritance, he did not immediately take Dickens out of the canning factory and send him to school. And so this actually was a, um, a source of a lot of bitterness later in Dickens' life sure. that his father didn't do this. Had we been reading David Copperfield, we would have seen the over t- the we would have seen this. Uh, David Copperfield actually has very similar things happen to him. Dickens did get sent to a school. It was called the Wellington House. It was classical and commercial academy. Was where he was educated. Wow! And he absolutely hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing we do know about so this was a private school. This was before public schools were a thing in Britain. His father would have had the money to have paid for him to be a day boarder as opposed to. Like when we talked about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis actually was sent to school and then he stayed there yeah. as a boarder. Yeah. As a boarder, Dickens would not have done that. He would have actually gone home in the evenings, but he would have gone very similar to what Shakespeare would have done, actually, during the day. Similar to what we do now with our schools. <laughs> we don't go to boarding, go to school, boarding school anymore. Come home. You go to school, then you go home. And mm-hmm. um, so he would have been a day schooler. Uh, but we do know at the time, at least according to him, that he was known for telling stories to the other students. I think he, he was actually known for telling stories to the other students at the Blacking Factory as well. Hmm. So he was always just someone who loved to tell stories. And there were plays at this Wellington house, and he would be heavily involved with those as well. Once he graduated, 
1827, he got a job as a solicitor's clerk. And why is this interesting? Do you guys know what a solicitor is? Uh, One who solicits. Mm -hmm. He is a lawyer. In fact, according to a law uh, law mag um, dictionary, that that's what they're called. (laughs) They are one who registered wills of the time. They copied transcripts and other sorts of things. So they might not. They they basically were the British version of a a lawyer. And why this is interesting for Dickens is because the legal world would be very prominent in most of his novels. In fact, by the end of his life, he had written 15 major novels. A lawyer or the court appears in 11 of them. Hmm. So some of the famous characters, Uriah Heep, Mr. Guppy, Mr. Tolkinghorn, two of them appear in this novel. And the court and the court system was a prominent and will be a prominent feature of Bleak House. And so something that we need to understand was a, a vital part of Dickens' life. Right. In fact, someone has written, a, a major scholar wrote a, a work called Charles Dickens as a Legal Historian, and it's because he had such a intimate, detailed knowledge of the London court system that he argues, and most agree, that you can get an accurate picture of what the London court system was like in his novels, especially in Bleak House. Yeah. Which... That's too bad. Yeah. is not very flattering. No. So... Spirit days and days go to mine. A needle-pulling thread. By 1833, he also mastered shorthand and became a parliamentary reporter, which would then take him into the last part of his career. So then, let's take a quick pause. Let's have another little historical moment. Because he was a solicitor from... He was a solicitor's clerk from 1827 to 1833. That's six years of his life. He learned a lot about the legal system. So what was the legal system that he learned about? Do we want to know this? (laughs) Dick doesn't know. Was it the thing from Bleak House? It's about the Court of Chancery. The Court of Chancery. Yeah. That would have been what I guessed. Yeah. So. Spirit ends and days gone by. I need a pulling thread. As anyone who's read Bleak House can see, and if this is an an actual accurate representation of the British legal system at the time, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it was a mess was because it was a holdover from the old courtly traditions of law in that you would have the common law versus what would be called laws of equity or laws that were overseen by the exchequer. And even these at the time were very vague, vaguely defined. Common law was what was written down as law, as we would understand law, in books after the Norman conquest of England in William 1100. The Conqueror. Yeah, William the Conqueror. And as we've talked... I think we talked about it in some of the earlier episodes of Shakespeare. This, I mean, when William the Conqueror conquered England, it vastly changed everything. Oh, sure. The reason we have the English language the way it is was because of the French influences that came in with William the Conqueror. So we have these Latinate influences. I mean, it was a major watershed moment in English history. And something else that he brought was the Domesday Book, which was basically, I mean, his legal order that he brought to England. And in the Domesday Book, and along with it, were these registers of the common law. What would happen is you would bring your case before the court, and the king would have a court. You could bring it before him, and you would argue your case. He would have a man that he would have in his stead, because there would be so many cases to hear, listen in his stead, and that person's name was the chancellor. Eventually, if the common law didn't satisfy your appeal, you would want a place to take it to. You would want, to, you would want a place to appeal to. 
this place would be then called the Court of Chancery. What the Chancery Court was, it was as opposed to common law, it was a court of equity. And what that meant was that the lawyers or the judges overseeing the courts of chancery were able to apply laws of equity as opposed to laws of common law. Hmm. What that means <laughs> is that instead of having these strict written laws, they could actually use their discretion and judgment Uh-oh. in making decisions. Um, it's really fascinating. We mentioned serial, serial earlier. There's an episode of that season three where they talk about... Um, what was it? In, in Florida, there are felons who have to appeal to the governor to get their voting rights back. Hmm. And there is no set of laws deciding, deciding who and what makes you eligible. So who is eligible for the getting the rights back and what makes you eligible? The governor just gets to decide willy-nilly. You come and you appeal to him and he listens to your case. And then he uses his discerning governing mind to decide whether or not you get your rights back. And that is kind of a kind of a good analogy for what the court of chancery would eventually become. And you can tell then why it became just this rat's nest of nastiness that it became by the time that we get to 1800s London. Because what would happen was you would have Lord Chancellors who were easily bought or Lord Chancellors who were prideful. And then you would have lawyers who would just sort of like barnacles on a ship, just start clinging to it. And they would want their money. And then this court over here would want its money, and so they would find ways to nurse the system until finally there was just became this thing where jarndice and jarndice is not really a joke, something that actually you could see happening in this system. Just this, like I said, I think a rat's nest. Have you ever seen a rat's nest before? They're disgusting. And it's they're just all, you know, all the grossness is just intertwined, and you try to pull it out, but it's just, you can't, because it's just this ball of urine and rat droppings. That's what the Court of Chancery was at the time of Dickens. <laughs> ball of urine and rat droppings. A ball droppings. of urine and rat droppings. And so that's what he was in, and he saw this. The injustice would be that if anyone, so the famous example in with the jarndice and jarndice, but then you have a friend who is trying to make his appeal for the right-of-way, mm-hmm. and it just pretty much ends up ruining him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's because the Court of Chancery was not meant to serve the people. It was meant to serve the lawyers and the judges, and those who had a business interest in the court. And this would disenchant Dickens with the system. I mean, who wouldn't that not disenchant? Not to get too political, but it is fairly similar to the American system we have right now. Sending someone to jail is not necessarily about their own good, but just about a whole bunch of processes that nobody really understands. Mm -hmm. So this is important to realize that this system existed, and there's a whole lot more injustice to it, but we can't spend the whole episode just talking about the Court of Chancery. But you just need to know that it was a messed up system and that Dickens was involved with it for six years. And then having grown up in London and having seen the poverty firsthand, his hatred of the poverty, and the way that the system, especially the legal system, worked to keep that poverty in place Mm -hmm. and to just completely ignore it and to not have anything to do with it. Now, what's interesting about Dickens is he had enough self-awareness also to realize that concern for the poor in itself could produce villains. Right. Because... This is Jollibee. Yeah, he hated philanthropists as well. Didn't mean he hated all philanthropists. Nicholas Nickleby is famous for having the two... The Cherubble Brothers. Yeah, the, that's right. And they were philanthropists. Right. And they're good philanthropists. And Mr. John Dice in this story is... Yes, he is. But he's taken advantage of. Right. Um, interestingly, by a artistic decadent, 
but he is taken advantage of. So we've made the point before that most authors, the themes that they're going to be concerned with most of their life are set in childhood. And so here we have Dickens and the two large themes of his novels apply to the poor and the legal system of London have been set by the time he's in his 20s, before he even starts writing. Now, just to kind of wrap up his career, he would have his first published story in 1833. So I already mentioned he became a shorthand. And what that was is it was just a system of being able to listen to parliamentary debates and take notes in shorthand. And then you would go and you would give that to a newspaper and they would be able to use it to write their reports, right? So you were in whatever they call that. They didn't have recorders at the time. And so that was the best alternative. Yeah, a stenographer. Because of being in that world and being a good writer, he would eventually then get into journalism. He would write for the Morning Chronicle, and that would then lead to him meeting Catherine Hogarth, the daughter of the Evening Chronicle, who he would eventually marry and abandon. I'm not saying Dickens was the greatest guy. (laughs) Kind of a theme among our favorite authors. Yeah, I know. But probably the other thing, important thing to mention about his life and his writing that's just interesting and that applies to Bleak House is that, and this is a famous known fact about Dickens, is that most of his works were published in serial volumes. And in fact, um, Bleak House would have been published probably either in Household Words or one of the publications that Dickens would actually himself edit and own later in his life. Early in his life, he would have written things such as Bentley's Miscellany, which would have been where he would have published like the Pickwick Papers. And these were just journals at the time. They were literary journals. They would be published for like a nickel or for a dime, and you could buy one and it would have stories. Some of them would be one-off short stories. Some of them would be stories that were carrying over from the previous month. And Dickens would write more of these kinds of stories, especially later in his life. But his first foray into this would have been the Pickwick Papers. This made him famous. But, but even before the Pickwick Papers, he had sketches, which he would publish in various journals, called, and then those would eventually be compiled and called Sketches by Boz, which was his first work. But his first official novel was the Pickwick Papers, and he would always publish them over like a year to two years. Then his next would be Oliver Twist, and then he became known. He was starting to get famous. He marries Catherine Hogarth. He gets into this upper crust journalist world of London. And the rest is history. Mm -hmm. But he really doesn't change his methodology. He would always publish his books in serialized versions. And because of the nature of that, he would end a lot of his works with cliffhangers because he would want people to buy the next volume and to be eager to buy the next volume. So it's fun reading Bleak House to decide, okay, where would the cliffhanger have been? Like, where did he end this? Mm -hmm. And maybe we can talk more about that. But let me see. Mine actually tells you does it really it's got the little yeah mine does not so you had march april may june july august september all the way till the september so it started in march 1852 chapters one through four until september 1853 this would be well this was bleak house every month he would buy another installment and we get to hear the remainder of the story of esther and richard and ada and clan and he would purposely end it on a cliffhanger so you would have the famous story is the ship came into like Boston Harbor and everybody was like, what happened to little Dorrit? What happened to little Dorrit from old curiosity shop? So, um, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to market himself early in his life. 
when he was writing for like Pintley's Miscellany or Master Humphrey's Clock or Household Worlds, not Household Worlds, but Master Humphrey's Clock, these other journals that were popular at the time, he would have been, he would have committed himself to a certain amount of words and a certain amount of pages. But later in his life, and that would have been the period with Bleak House and David Copperfield, he himself was actually the owner of journals. And so he could do whatever he wanted at that point. He could write as long as he wanted. He could write as little as he wanted um, because he became such a big name that people would just accept whatever Dickens was doing. It, it would be what would be similar today. Yeah. Rolling. Rolling. Yeah. Or uh, Chris Nolan, right? Right. One of these auteurs who still have the authority to do whatever they want, basically. Right. And people just give them the right. But they had to earn it. Right. Early on, they had to earn it. So the so early they could blow it. Yeah. So the yeah. yeah. So they could blow it. So the early J.K. Rowling is much more classically children's story. Yeah. Than the later Harry Potter. She stuff. earned it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and she earned it, and she. I mean, as we talked about in the Harry Potter series, she uh, she made it pay off with the last with Deathly Hollows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now she's living on it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just fascinating. The wizarding world is yeah. going to destroy Harry Potter if she's not careful. Yeah. Yep. But nothing's new under the sun. And we saw this. This was Dickens' life. Mm-hmm. This is... And he kind George of... George Lucas. Yep. Yeah, the way, he, the way he spoiled it was by becoming... By killing himself, basically. So what he did was in the 1850s, he abandoned his wife, Catherine, because he met an actress that he thought was very pretty. Hmm. And he wanted her instead. Hey. Surprise. What do you know about that? And he justifies this in David Copperfield in a very troublesome way, which we can talk about. It might be my favorite novel of his, but man, that is problematic as this. Yeah, once you realize what's going on with Dora and Ada, not I mean Agnes in that novel, it's pretty troublesome. He may or may not find a way to kill off his wife in a way that still makes him seem like he's an okay guy. So... And gets the girl that he should have always been with. Yep. And that's Yuck. Dickens. He would act in plays. He loved to act still later in life. He would be in, but one of the things he weakened his health quite a bit was when he would agree to go and travel these circuits where he would read his works. People, he became a superstar. Dickens yeah. was a superstar. And he would go and he would read his novels. He traveled to America. He has a famous series of American essays that he wrote where he really tells you how little bit how little he thinks of america yeah and that was dickens yeah i mean there's not a whole lot more to say about him i guess the last thing then to say would be about his style i think i mentioned before that i'm fascinated by this history of newspapers Mm. and how literary magazines oh yeah this was kind of the heyday of the literary magazine as being a populist tool everybody would buy literary magazines at the time when you get to the 1900s i mean the 20th 20th century century, yeah. yeah With Flannery elitist. O'Connor, it becomes elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a different, a whole different, they were basic, yeah, they, they were like the comic books of the time. Right. Everybody would buy them. Everybody was excited to read these things. And they had their roots in the 1700s with guys like Addison and Still who would write these journals about, with essays. Anybody who wants to learn how to write an essay needs to know who Addison and Still is. You know, that's, uh, that one's for free. So anyways, now we can get to the last couple of things to talk about which is Dickens, where he is in literary history. He is at the height of the novel. The novel is coming into its own while Dickens is writing. And so he gets to write at one of those magical moments of literary history, like we've talked about with uh, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare was just at that perfect moment where 
London was expanding in the right way. All these influences were coming in. It was wealthy enough. It had just this perfect confluence of events to allow for Shakespeare to have been Shakespeare. Dickens is the same way. All these perfect confluence of events. Well, the novel, it's, worth, it's worth saying the novel it hasn't been around that long. Yeah, it's a young form. Um, Jane Austen was one of the earliest novelists. Absolutely. And she was a genius and she perfected the form in many ways. And then Dickens would take it and with the various commercial venues that he had at the time, the serialized form, all these things. When you see other writers who were trying to do the same thing that he was doing, you have Fenimore Cooper in England, I mean, in America. Right. You have Wilkie Collins, who was kind of his mentee. Mm-hmm. He was the mentor of Wilkie Collins. Neither of these guys hold a candle really to Dickens. No, they don't. Right. So whatever complaints you have about Dickens in the end, Dickens really is the master of this type of Victorian novel. You don't want to see what a real crass sort of just writing, getting their word count in kind of, you read Fenmore Cooper, you read Wilkie They're both good in their way. Yeah. I'm not trying to knock them, but just by comparison. They're pretty yeah. crude in what they're doing. And so, I mean, Wilkie, yeah, Wilkie Collins is different. Wilkie Collins is actually pretty good. Yeah, I mean, but Fenimore we'll, Cooper we might is, do The Woman in White yeah. sometime. I don't know. But um, Fenimore Cooper is just trash as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But I'm with uh, Mark Twain on that one. Yes, me too. And then also, I mean, are you read some of the, like the, uh, the best of them, it would be Jane Eyre. But mm-hmm. what am I thinking? Wuthering Heights. These, right. these sorts of. The Brontes. Yeah. Highly theatrical, highly, I can't, I actually can't speak to Jane Eyre because I have, that's one of my blind spots. My, so it's a blind spot of mine, but I do know like Wuthering Heights. What else would fall into this category of overly stylized novel? Well, I mean, it's just the Gothic tradition oh, in sure. general. And Radcliffe. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, you see those novels and then you look at Dickens with Bleak House. It has Gothic elements to it. Down to ghost stories. Yeah. And so this gets us to when we have the height of the novel, the 1800s, people think a lot about over the top. They think a lot about sentiment, sentimentality, which all sentimentality really is just the novelist using emotions to manipulate the reader. You think about all these things and people tend to accuse Dickens of being these things. I would argue that Dickens uses these things occasionally, but they don't define his novels. Mm-hmm. I was struck by how unsentimental Bleak House is in yeah. the end. Really, you have some glaring moments that stand out and bother me a whole lot. They're very glaring, but yeah, yes. But in the end, it's not a sentimental novel. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense that, like, uh, Pamela is, or Rebecca, whatever that famous novel is. Richardson, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Pamela. That's Pamela, right. In the sense that that's a, that's a sentimental novel, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, what's interesting about Bleak House, and I think why it's often looked to as the greatest of the Dickens novels, he, you would have few contenders, but in the end, I think people would say it would be either David Copperfield or Bleak House. David Copperfield is just the perfect Dickensian novel. Mm-hmm. I, I like David Copperfield more than Bleak House. Me too. But Bleak House is fascinating because, I mean, it's just so weird. Mm-hmm. With it, you have, it's gothic, it's sarcastic, it's a parody, it's just brutally, brutally vicious towards the legal system towards philanthropy. So it's, um, I mean, it's, it's high sarcasm, better, I mean, just as good as what Twain could do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just going after everybody. And then it's also sentimental, but then it's also the first detective novel we have. And it's just doing all these innovations. And it's also postmodern in the sense that it's playing with form. It's like it's got both the narrator telling a third person story 
and a first person narrator. Yeah. I mean, he's doing these crazy things that. And kind of the third person narrator intruding on the first person narrator. All yeah. the time. <laughs> All the time. And yeah. Th- yeah. And so it's just, it's this really weird novel that I think if you realize the history of, you realize Dickens' history, you realize this is where he's kind of coming into his own. He just wrote David Copperfield before this. David Copperfield was kind of his first foray into, he was the editor of a magazine. Now he could do basically whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. This is his, what's that new Chris Nolan war movie? Oh, uh, inner something starts with an I. No, it's the the one that just came out. Oh, what is that called? Dunkirk. Oh, Dunkirk, yeah. Yeah, this is his, this is Dunkirk. He could just do him whatever he wants now. Starts with an I. Right. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't care what people think. Right. He's just writing the novels that he wants to write. I mean, bas- this is his King Lear. This is right. his... Because King Lear is, in many ways, a very, very, very weird Shakespeare play. And this is, yeah, this is just weird. Right. And in the end, I think it helps to realize we're, you know, this is later Dickens. This is Dickens at the height of his craft. This is Dickens just doing whatever he wants now because Dickens doesn't have to really appeal to people. Right. He can just be Dickens. It's the movie you make after you win the Oscar. Yeah. And the Oscar-winning movie was, it was his Forrest Gump. It was David Copperfield. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> now he gets to do, you know... His uh, two twenty, what is it? His, I've uh, never seen it. That space movie. Oh, what? Space Odyssey. Interstellar. Two thousand one. A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. This is Dickens' two thousand one. A Space right. Odyssey. Actually, Edwin, the mystery of Edwin Drood is his two thousand one. A Space oh, Odyssey. Boy. And that is a weird book. Yep. We only have the first quarter of it. But boy, is that a strange book. I guess the only other thing to mention, mystery of Edwin Drood, makes me think of this, is that uh, with. And this will help segue us into a discussion of the book. With the rise of a city that has more money than it knows what to do with, even the poor are able to afford their addictions. Mm -hmm. And so the famous example from this book is the part you mentioned as being uh, intriguing. Opium. Where the guy's dead because he took too much opium. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Dickens, I don't know why, but Dickens was very, he wrote a lot about opium addiction. Hmm. The Mystery of Evan Drood opens up in an opium dim. Dickens was a socially aware man that whatever we want to say about him, he cared Mm -hmm. and he observed. He did. And you can see that in his characters. Um, Style, I guess we should mention, just in case somebody out there doesn't know, Dickensian is a term. Mm -hmm. And then it does mean a very particular thing. It means then the style of Dickens. What that usually means is comedy. In in, In a sense... The Coen brothers are Dickensian. Oh, sure, yeah. Because what they do, I actually, they may be the most Dickensian American movie makers, to be honest. Off the top of my head, I'd say absolutely. Yeah. Because what Dickensian is, and we talked a little bit about it with Shakespeare, is it's comedy, but comedy mixed with tragedy in a sense. And these characters that are extremely memorable and yet also at the same time seem very two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Grotesques in a certain sense. Grotesques, but in a different way than Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. I mean, you can always tell a Dickens character. I can imagine a Skimple mm-hmm. right off the top of my head. I know Skimples. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know John Jarndyce's too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Men who are always, who are very generous at heart and lovable and yet never want to accuse other men mm-hmm. and never really want to exercise the discernment that they have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you can take that character and exaggerate it until you find some essential truth at its core. Yeah. Hey, the book thing today. It featured Brandon Chastain, as you know, dispensing nuggets of wisdom like King Midas, taking nuggets and touching them with his golden hand and turning them into more gold. Mm-hmm. 
Taking those nuggets in my hand. Mm-hmm. Taking those nuggets in your hand. Or like a McDonald's employee. Yeah. Every time I go to McDonald's, it's really difficult to eat. Those nuggets are always just turned into gold. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and we had Jake. Yo. The master of reading himself, Jacob Menzel, wearing a That's maroon me. shirt. He probably wants you to go. Jake, if they wanted to support us, what could they do? Where would they go? They could go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Mm-hmm. Support us for as little as a dollar a month and as much as they want to. Yeah. A billion dollars a month. Yeah. Man. For $25 a month, you're going to get a shirt eventually, somehow or yeah, another. Yeah, or guys. What would they get for a billion dollars? A billion shirts. Actually, that would break the bank. They'll get yeah. like a thousand shirts. And Jake will personally deliver them a pizza, pepperoni, double pepperoni. Here you go, people. Gladly. Yeah. Thousand shirts. For a billion dollars? Yeah, for a billion dollars, I think. I will give you a thousand shirts and I will personally deliver a double pepperoni pizza. And I will drive you. him. And that's terrible because usually Jake drives in these situations because it's better that way. <laughs> but we'll do it for a billion dollars. That's right. And Brandon? I will do something. He'll do something. He'll wash your car. I'll wash your car. For a billion dollars. For a billion dollars. Not for, not for a million. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, go to patreon.com forward slash. Follow us on social media. Go to iTunes. Brandon, you think they should go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever Rate they listen and to? review. It means yeah, a lot. It really does matter. Yeah, no. If, if you, you know, I know we always ask for money, but if you can't afford, that's fine. Something that's really nice that you can do for free is to go to whatever, wherever you listen and rate and review. Yeah, if we're not up to 75 reviews by... If we're not up to 100 reviews by the end of next year, yeah, I quit. Wow. You just want to hear Come me on, guys. Jake? Like, <laughs> the show will be dead, Be man. emotional about things? No, we need Brandon. We need He's the ballast. We know that we have All more I than 100 listeners. All I can do is just cry. What's we have more than 100 listeners. Oh, yeah. Did you just ask if we have more than 100 listeners? No, I said we know we have more than yeah, 100 yeah. listeners. Yeah. We know that we have way more than that. Way more. Way. Yeah. Thousands of you. Yeah, yeah so I mean... Come on, guys. It's the numbers don't lie. And yet, we only have like 60 or... Yeah, what are you guys doing? Reviews. Yeah. What are you, Come you on. Just like sucking your thumbs Too busy there? reading books? Yeah. Stop it, nerds. Reading Dickens? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nerds. Get on the internet. Yeah, get on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> are you even literate enough to write a review? <laughs> Go prove it. <laughs> Listen, we got some great reviews thanks to the review that Brandon dictated. Let's dictate another review. You guys just, I don't care who does it. Let's just dictate another review for people. Why don't you start it, Jake, and Brandon, you finish it. Oh, boy. The best friend you could ever not desire is definitely not these cheeky fellows. (laughs) There you go. Best friend you could ever not desire is definitely not these cheeky fellows. I'd love to see that review. <laughs> I would really. And by no means are we under the imperious curse. <laughs> yes. no. By no means are we under the imperious curse. By no means. Um, or, and by no means am I under the imperious curse. Yes, I would love to see that um, review. So, and and if you don't want to do that one, they're gonna, these guys are going to now give you another one. Go ahead. <laughs> are we seriously? Yeah. yeah, just one more and then we'll be done. Hey. <laughs> is for <laughs> cows. <laughs> But <laughs> not for goats. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>